You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, I'm Rachel Wong, and thank you for joining us on Below the Radar. This week, we are joined by writer Amitav Ghosh. Amitav, who is from India, is the author of a number of books, including The Great Derangement. This book was the focus of a talk that he gave as part of the 2019 Indian Summer Festival. In this episode, our host, Am Johal, along with special guest host, Olive Dempsey, dive into climate change and examine the different sides of it, along with Amitav. Together, they talk about how the climate crisis goes beyond science, the relationship between movement, displacement, and climate change, and how denying that climate change exists is actually something that is particularly potent in the Anglosphere. Delighted that you could join us on uh, Below the Radar. We have our guest Amitav Ghosh with us this morning, and he'll be speaking later tonight as part of the Indian Summer Festival on his book, The Great Derangement. And uh, we also have with us the host of Big Bright Dark podcast, Olive Dempsey. Welcome, Olive. Hello. Thanks for having me. Amitav, just delighted that you could take the time to uh, meet with us this morning. And I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, The Great Derangement. It really made me think about a lot of things in terms of my own research and writing uh, as well. But I feel like you captured the big questions in a really interesting way. Uh, you start off the book saying that your family were ecological refugees long before the word was invented. Can you s- share some of your family's story of displacement in the, in the 19th century? Well, first of all, um, thank you very much, Anne. Thank you, Olive, for inviting me to be here. It's a great pleasure to be here speaking with you today. My family is originally from Bangladesh. And as you know, Bangladesh has a very kind of... It's ecologically very unsettled in the sense that, uh, you know, it's a a deltaic region. It's one of the biggest deltas in the world. It's It's a delta formed by the confluence of the Ganges and the Brahmaputra. And it's, you know, it's just this vast deltaic region with thousands of rivers, which constantly in times of inundation, they change course. And the story that my father told me about about our family was that in the 1850s, a river changed course and basically drowned the village that we were originally from. So from that time onwards, my family started traveling, you know, they started moving eastwards and so on. And they ultimately ended up, I think, about maybe three, four hundred miles to the west of where they'd been. But, you know, it sort of inaugurated a sort of pattern of movement, which really went on and on for ages. I think you'll find that, you know, when families are displaced in that way, the movements tend to echo down the generations, you know. So, for example, in my generation, my cousins are sort of everywhere, (laughs) including Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious about this link around displacement in the Anglosphere. You talk about denialism and the Anglosphere being particularly acute in your book. And 
There is something that I think a lot about in terms of the Anglosphere and in what we call North America in particular, which is populated with the exception of indigenous communities by folks who are living the echoes of displacement through varying generations. And I'm just curious if there's links somehow or what the links are between this kind of inability to grapple with the climate crisis and the displacement that we're all, you know, living with the echoes of somehow. Well, the point that I make in my book is actually it's an empirical thing. I mean, it's actually been shown that this whole idea of denial or climate denial is very much linked uh, to the English language. Uh, you know, it uh, tends to be particularly strong in English-speaking countries. And it tends particularly to be particularly strong in, uh, shall we say, the settler colonial countries. You know, most of all in, in, in the US, in Canada, in Australia. Uh, not so much in New Zealand, I think. But these three countries, it's a very powerful thing. This whole extractivist economy was really pioneered by America. I think, you know, when you look at the whole history of what has brought us to this particular moment in time, the real sort of inflection point, I think, is the discovery of the Americas. Because most of all, it was the discovery of the Americas, it was the availability of the Americas, if you like, that gave rise to this ideology of what's called cornucopianism. You know, somehow the idea that there would always be more and more and more and more. And that ideology is now so deeply rooted in people. And it's not just here, it's everywhere now, because America really made it their national mission to carry this ideology to the rest of the world. And they succeeded. I mean, you know, in India, in China, people are now think in much the same way. So this ideology is just so powerful and also so attractive. I mean, we'd all like to believe that there's more and more and more and more. You know, that it's hard to get rid of, really. I mean, it's hard to know what, what you can put in its place. You write that the accumulation of carbon is rewriting the destiny of the earth, of its past and its present. And in terms of the title of the book as well, you observe that the climate crisis is also a crisis of culture. And uh, in some sense, arts and cultural literature in particular has been challenged by this question. In fact, in many ways, has left out discussing or thinking about the climate. Wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this. One of the sort of really weird things that's happened in relation to our climate crisis today is that it's almost always framed as an issue of science and technology. Scientists have done very, very important work in alerting us to what's happening. But they are just the messengers, you know. I mean, it's in some sense, what lies behind this climate crisis is really culture. It's a pattern of desire. It's a pattern of wanting. And all of that comes from culture, really. I mean, you know, just to give you one example, I mean, the internal combustion engine isn't just a machine, uh, you know. I mean, it is a machine, but it's much more than that. Attached to it is this enormous uh, nebula, if you like, of desires, of imagery, all of that. So, for example, if you ask someone, especially in North America, what does freedom mean to you? The image that they'll usually provide is one of being on a car, on a vast empty road, or on a motorcycle, on this empty road going off into nowhere. Think about what a curious idea of freedom this is, because on the one hand, uh, your idea of freedom is tethered to fossil fuels. On the other hand, uh, you're driving it down a road that someone made for you already, you know, with some, presumably with somebody's taxes. Etc. So in what way does that suggest any kind of freedom? If anything, it suggests exactly the opposite. It's those kinds of confusions, uh, really, that to me suggested this title, The Great Derangement. 
it strikes me too in, in the example that you just gave around the image of a, a car being driven, that it's also a freedom that is alone. It's yeah. a freedom of the individual. And that was something right. that came through so clearly to me in your book was talking about, you think you use the, the phrase individualizing imaginary in which we are trapped. And that that shows up even in how we can conceive of our own response to the climate crisis, that somehow we still can only conceive of it. Or for many, many folks, you know, living in the Anglosphere in particular, the only pathway we have is to imagine that we, you know, are going to, quote, be the change we wish to see. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what you might envision or what you see as another way that doesn't hold us bound by the individualizing imaginary in our responses to the climate crisis. It's the great triumph of neoliberalism that it succeeded in uh, persuading us that all issues are ultimately issues of consumerism. So that's what it's really become. I mean, in uh, in the minds of so many people, especially in the Anglosphere, but actually throughout the West and now even in India, the whole climate thing becomes almost automatically an idea in relation to, you know, what you consume, what you buy, etc. This entire way of thinking about this crisis, to me, really represents actually a catastrophic failure. Because, you know, you may have not that individual decisions aren't important. Of course, they're important, if nothing else, in at least foregrounding the problem in our minds. But there's no way that you can actually tackle this issue in that individualistic way. Because, you know, actually, even to present it in that way is a concealment. For example, if you look at images of the individual carbon footprint, you'll see thousands of them on the net, you know. They always break the carbon footprint down into, let's say, transportation, into uh, meat, what you eat. Having children. Having children, entertainment, etc. But what this completely obscures is that 25% of greenhouse gas emissions in most advanced countries is produced by the defense sector. Where in that individual carbon footprint is this accounted for? So actually, you know, you're just concealing that entire reality, which you and I, through individual choice, can do nothing to affect. What does it mean to solarize a house if you don't actually have a grid into which you can feed it? You know, in so many ways, these are collective decisions. There's nothing you can uh, there's nothing you can do about that. Or the fact that, you know, when you go into a supermarket, everything you buy is wrapped in plastic and then you have to get yet more plastic to put it into. I mean, you go to the farmer's market and, you know, you're weighing your things in plastic. I mean, what's the point of it? You know, Bangladesh banned uh, this kind of first uh, single use plastic years ago. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, here in North America, it's still considered normal to live like that. Again, you know, what is the imagery that lies behind plastic? I mean, you just think about it. I mean, when you go to a farmer's market and buy some vegetables, of course, when you get back home, you're going to wash it. So what is it? I mean, what does this plastic signify? Some idea of purity or neatness or whatever. And actually, you think about what it is. It's anything but pure or neat or anything. And you know, that really terrible thing is how powerful this imagery and this culture is. In India, even four or five years ago, if you went to the market, you didn't have to be imbricated with plastic in so many ways. But now it's inescapable. It's everywhere. 
You make a distinction in the book between capitalism and empire in your critique of the climate crisis, and you write of the rise of Asian economies and standards of living, and you write, what we have learned from this experiment is that patterns of life that modernity engenders can only be practiced by a small minority. These patterns of living can't be adopted by everyone. Every family can't have two cars, a washing machine, and a refrigerator because humanity would asphyxiate the period of the great acceleration coincides with the period of decolonization. I mean, it just that 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 sentence hits you like a sucker punch in, in, in a way in terms of like how you capture like what's happened in certainly the second part of the 20th century into the the present. And so, how do we think about this problem of empire through, and how do we, you distinguish it from capitalism? I think most theorists would say there's no difference. Empire and capitalism are the same thing. I actually don't buy that, you know. I don't think empire and capitalism are the same thing. We know of forms of capitalism which were not as carbon intensive as extractive uh, uh, settler colonial capitalism. You know, uh, for example, it's been shown repeatedly that, uh, say, East Asian capitalism, that is Korean and Japanese capitalism. Uh, was actually not resource-intensive. In- it was labor-intensive capitalism, you know. So I-, I don't think capitalism is just one thing. It-, it is a number of different things. But the fact that the dominant model of capitalism today is the Anglo-American model, how can you remove that from the considerations of empire and considerations of power? It was because Britain was so dominant that it managed to foist this ideology upon the rest of the world. But more than that, you know, Climate change, somebody, one of the IPCC authors said recently, climate change is fundamentally a problem of inequality. You know, it's a problem of injustice. It's a problem of injustice in this way that a very small change in the per capita footprint of basically Asians and Africans, you know, they expanded their per capita footprint very, very slightly, which means that they grew slightly richer, if you like, if indeed we consider consumerism the equivalent of wealth, but they grew slightly sort of more consumerist, if you like. And that happened in these last 30 years. And that's exactly when half the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere were put there in the last 30 years. And it's exactly this change that brought it about. At this point, inequality, injustice are absolutely fundamental to climate change. I think those people we call climate denialists, I don't think they're denialists at all. They know perfectly well what the problem is. They know that perfectly well. Basically, what their attitude is, is that those people out there, climate change is going to hit them, they're going to suffer, they're going to perish, and that'll solve the problem on its own. We mustn't imagine that those people don't have a plan. They do have a plan, and this is the plan. They actually want to accelerate climate change because they think it'll take care of the problem by killing lots of people. That's fundamentally it. It's a sobering framing of what's happening and of the trajectory that we're that we're on. And I'm, I'm I'm imagining sitting with that possibility. And I think even that, to me, that speaks to this fundamental question that you're working through in the book, which is one of our imagination, our our individual and our collective imaginations, and the role that that plays in our ability to conceive of what's happening. And it strikes me that what you've just shared around the idea that the trajectory we're on is an intentional one for some folks, that that in and of itself is a hard thing to imagine, in that it pushes us to 
what am I saying here? I think what I'm what I'm feeling into in this is that I think one of the narratives, dominant narratives, along with endless progress and limitless growth and all of that, is that so-called democratic capitalism has the world's best interest at heart, right? I mean, certainly as someone who was raised in white lady going to school in Canada, that's certainly the story that we were fed is that this is what we're what we're living is best for the world, right? And I know that that's not the case. And I guess what I'm hearing is another call to completely reimagine how we understand ourselves the world and how we understand the shape of the world, kind of in the same way that you call, I think, in the book on us to reimagine our relationship to Earth and Earth's forces and catastrophe and scale of change and our own vulnerability. So this isn't really a question, but it's just more of what I'm hearing when I hear your your reflections on the systemic forces that are that are pushing us towards towards increasing chaos. You know, I know that what I'm saying is a very dark and terrible thing. And it's hard for us to reckon with it. But yet in our hearts, I think we all know that this is the case. Which is not to say that there aren't many, many people who are profoundly well-intentioned, who wish nothing but well, you know, in relation to the world. And certainly those are the young activists who go out in the streets, who are are striving as hard as they can. Uh, What you just said, uh, that democratic capitalism, essentially, that we assume that it has the world's best interests at heart, I think it's exactly that assumption that prevents us sometimes from actually recognizing what stares us in the face, this kind of assumption. And if you actually ask yourself if democratic capitalism or its phobias actually had the world's best interests at heart, why would you have had what happened to indigenous populations in the new world? Why would you have had slavery? Why would you have had imperialism? Why would you have had, I mean, uh, you know, today, despite democratic capitalism, inequality is greater in the world than ever in human history. How do we reconcile those things? So sometimes I do feel that, you know, our kind of assumptions about liberal goodwill really are very misleading, if you like. And you know, the curious thing is that if you look at religious traditions, if you look at, say, Catholicism, or you look at Hinduism, or Islam, or Buddhism, or whatever, they never make these this kind of, uh, as it were, cheerful assumption about human nature or about human beings. In all religious traditions, there's a profound reckoning of the evil that is inherent in human beings. And religion is fundamentally in so many ways an attempt to, as it were, both recognize and master this capacity for wrongdoing, isn't it? And I think when we make those assumptions that <laughs> that people only wish uh, wish each other well or whatever, I think we really need to re- rethink that, you know? Because we know that really the only sustainable lifestyles actually are those of Ethiopian and Bangladeshi villagers who lead very, very simple lives. You tell me, if you went out in the street here and even spoke to the most well-meaning person you can find and say, are you willing to lead that life? What do you think they're going to say? And they may not be willing to accept it, but in fact, they'll fight to keep it. Near the end of the, the book, you do a close reading of two texts, the Paris Agreement and uh, Pope Francis's encyclical on the climate crisis. And you f- refer to the giddy virtuosity of the Paris Agreement, you know, the backslapping diplomats coming to agreement that really connected with me clearly. And you talk about the possibilities of mobilizing the best 
sides of organized religion and the fight for climate justice. Organized religion has also been involved historically in the project of empire too. And so how do you reconcile the possibilities of organized religion in terms of scaling up to fight for climate justice in the in the moral ways that you speak about, but also with the legacy of its colonial past, particularly in its relationship to indigenous communities? You know, when I was writing this book in 2016 was when the IPCC report came out, and it was also when Pope Francis's Laudato Si came out. And naturally, you know, I read both. And, you know, I'm not a technological expert. I don't have those kinds of skills. But I can read. <laughs> you know, I'm a writer, so I can read. And it's actually so interesting to apply, as it were, the tools of rhetoric, really classical rhetoric, if you like, to these two texts. Because I think they're deeply revelatory. You know, just the rhetoric is, I mean, and come, you know, we are humans, we live in language. What we say really is often what we, what we are. And if you if you read those two texts together, it's very, very striking. I mean, the climate agreement, the Paris climate agreement is completely um, a closed text. You can see that they're addressing basically technocrats. The whole intention of it is almost the whole intention of it is to obscure what it is, to reserve it, if you like, to reserve this problem for a group of technocrats and bureaucrats. You know, I mean, it has such bizarre sorts of um, verbiage. I mean, for example, uh, you know, there's, it has these clauses where it says climate champions will be appointed. What's a climate champion? Who's going to appoint them? Who's a, you know, I mean, you know, it's going to be some big bureaucrat somewhere, you know. So, I mean, it's just a completely sealed text. I'm not saying that it has no value. Of course, it has the value of bringing together a very large number of people. But we know that, you know, in the discussions, many billionaires, etc., were involved, whereas activists were kept off the streets by a very well-planned operation whereby they locked up. What was it? Um, they put under house arrest 40 environmental activists. How did they even know to do that? You know, it just makes you just makes you wonder. Whereas with the Pope's text, uh, the rhetoric of it is so completely different. It's written in the simplest language. It puts the issues very, very simply, even though we know that the Pope was assisted by a very stellar panel of uh, scientists and activists and so on, including your own Naomi Klein. So, you know, that's the extraordinary thing. Very complex ideas he puts into the simplest of words. As opposed to the, uh, to the Paris Agreement, uh, Laudato Si is a text that's striving to open itself. You know, and I, I, I do think that it comes from the Pope's Jesuit background. You know, I mean, he's been out there meeting poor people. He knows, and he knows that, you know, something that he says as Pope will go into the poorest houses. So simply through that, uh, that text, you know, he's able to reach uh, 1.2 billion Catholics. But apart from that, I mean, you know, simply by power of example, he reaches so many more. So I do think that Laudato Si is, I would say, it's the most important thing written on this subject. You know, uh, both as a text that's explaining and a text that is performative in the sense that it puts into motion certain acts, if you like. So I do think it's a, it's a very, very powerful text. Can religions actually, are they capable of, sol of <laughs> solving or addressing this issue? Who's to say? But we know that the secular world has completely failed also. I mean, its failure is every day more evident. So what can you say? We have, at this point, we've exhausted all human resources, you might say. 
Accept the sacred. I mean, that's one of the pieces right. that, that really, like when I was reading the book, I had the parts that I bracketed, the parts that I underlined, and the parts that I starred. And it was sort of order of, <laughs> this really jumps out at me. And, and you have a, a line towards the end around, and it circles back to, this is one of the things I starred, it circles back to what you were speaking to earlier around limits, right? And how painful it can be in our current context, I guess, of affluence, of Western affluence, to, to quote unquote, give up what we have and, and what we have that gives us so much meaning and links so much to our identity and sense of worth and all of that. And, and so you talk about one of the pieces of work that needs to happen is to come into contact with our own limits. And that part of what might support us to do that is a relationship with the sacred. And so I'd love to hear more about that, and in particular, what you mean by the sacred, and also in the context of those folks who do live very secular lives, or for whom an organized religious response might not be a place where they feel at home, but that they also do something about the sacred does feel like a longing for them. I just would love to hear more of your your thoughts on that. I I, I wish I could lay it all out in a you I'd know like a ten step a, plan, please. Coherent <laughs> way. But look, in the first place, we do know that. Um, the idea of limits, it has to be axiomatic. You can't necessarily establish it discursively. And in that axiomatic way, it has to be, what what other word can we use but a sense of the sacred, you know? And it is actually the case that all sacred traditions do speak of holding yourself in. As opposed to that, you have the idea of a greed is good, of the maxim- self-maximizing individual, which is the ideology of contemporary economics. We now know that if we were all to maximize to the best of our abilities, what would happen to this planet? But in fact, this is the ideology that has come to prevail. It's everywhere around us. When I speak of this uh, sacred or whatever, personally speaking, you know, I'm not thinking at all about organized religion and so on, because one of the really sad things that's actually happened is that all religions today especially the very successful politicized religions, they've internalized a certain kind of capitalist ethic, you know, which perhaps started with Protestantism, but which has now entered really the mainstream of, for example, you look at the ideologies of a person like Erdogan, the leader of Turkey. I mean, on the one hand, he calls himself a very devout Muslim. On the other hand, uh, you know, he's all about promoting growth, promoting capitalism. You see the same thing happening with certain kinds of Buddhism, with certain kinds of Hinduism. I mean, in fact, these these have all become, as it were, these ideologies have all become effects of modernity, effects of a certain kind of capitalist modernity. Where do we today look for the alternatives? And I think in, uh, th- th- this is another way in which the new world is so important, I think, to our thinking on this, because I think really we have to look at the ideas and ideologies of the first peoples of the Americas and Australia. You know, and personally for myself, I find that this is the only rewarding way to think, to look at how the indigenous peoples of the new world are really conceived of what it means to live in this world. If you think of the end of the world (laughs) that we are sort of increasingly forced to think about, it is also true that, you know, the indigenous peoples actually lived through the end of their world and they found ways of surviving, you know. I think they have so much to teach us. Uh, Yeah, there's 370 million indigenous people in the world and uh, when you look at the UN reports and the collective organizing that's going on in terms of standing in the way of extractive development, it's uh, not just a theoretical idea in many ways, it's a pragmatic one in terms of figuring out a different way that this could be possible. I was going to also ask you, you have a new book out, 
right now as well. That's a that's a work of fiction. And wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that because it's not yet available in Canada, as far as I know. Uh, no, it's not out yet yeah. in Canada. Uh, but just something you said uh, earlier, I just want to refer to that. There are hundreds of millions of indigenous peoples around the world, and they are doing a great deal to sort of confront these issues, especially of extractivism, if you like. But, you know, I do think that the indigenous peoples of the Americas and Australia have a special position in relation to how we think about these issues, you know. Because the indigenous peoples of the old world, even those that were not uh, literate, lived in the presence of literacy. And I think literacy, in some way, creates a different relationship with the world. And I find it very interesting. I don't know if you've read this book called The Falling Sky. It's the memoirs of a Yanomami shaman. And it's a, it's a sort of collaborative effort. I mean, the book resulted from his sort of collaboration with a with a French anthropologist. It's a, it's a very, very interesting book. But he points out repeatedly that, uh, you know, it's the marks on leather, he calls it, as far as I remember, the marks on leather that prevent you from seeing in the ways in which the Yanomami see. There's a great treasure there, you know, in the sense of how do we see differently? How do we look at things differently? And that's where I feel that, you know, it's a particular thing that the indigenous traditions of the New World uh, can teach us, you know, I mean, it's not just a question of the politics. It's it's also a question of a metaphysics, if you like. Yeah, there was a book written in the uh, early 70s by a really important indigenous leader in Canada named George Manuel. And he was doing a lot of international solidarity work. And it was published as The Fourth World, which was to make a distinction between the first, second, and third, mm. but also a different way of mm. looking at the relationship to land. And it's just been reprinted finally because the publisher had gone out of print. And University of Minnesota Press just put it out again and has a foreword by Glenn Coulthard, who's a really important decolonization scholar here, but what you just said made me think of that book, which is a beautifully written book from the early 70s and is finally beginning to recirculate now. Yeah, actually, there's a lot of interesting work coming out now, including one on, uh, you know, on the Yukon. <laughs> I mentioned that because it's not far from here. It's called um, something like Do Glaciers Peak? Because the indigenous peoples, the Tlingit and the Kwakiutl and so on, actually believe that glaciers do speak and that they are entities, that is, they are agents. And I think this is really the thing that we are waking up to now, you know, all these aspects of agency that surround us and to which we had become blind. But only now that they're actually striking us in the face that we realize that, you know, we were the ones who were blind and deaf. I feel like I could say more. I could ask more. I'm mindful of our time and of your time. So I actually might just leave it there. I mean, that gets a beautiful beautiful closing sure. and maybe I'll just say that I appreciate that we have a writer speaking about the ways that literacy and reading the written word might itself be a, a challenge to our ability to respond to this time and I am hearing in what you're saying I guess a kind of call to also get out from behind books and to be an experience and to use all our senses to show up to build new capacities in our in ourselves. Yes I think we've really reached a moment where you know, our critique can't just be about the systems that are in the world, but also about the systems that are within ourselves, you know. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for joining us, both yeah. of you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so Olive. Much. Thank you, Am. It was a real pleasure.
Thank you again to Amitav Ghosh for joining us on this episode of Below the Radar. To learn more about Amitav and his book, The Great Derangement, you can go to his website, amitavghosh.com. We've put a link to that in the episode description. If you missed Amitav's talk back in July, not to worry. There is a link to a video where you can watch and rewatch it in our Knowledge Mobilization AV Gallery. Thank you also to Olive Dempsey for co-hosting this episode of Below the Radar. As mentioned, she joins us from the podcast Big, Bright, Dark, which you can find on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. As always, many thanks to the team that puts this podcast together. Our production team, which includes myself and Maria Cecilia Saba. Davis Steele is the composer for our theme music. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Below the Radar.